Turn to Matthew chapter 10 as we continue in our study out of the Gospel of Matthew as we learn more about the King and His Kingdom. And today our focus is on the commissioning of His disciples. And uh, we're going to focus on that this morning. Uh, I think there's a lot of practical insight that we can glean from this text. Some of you might wonder, what is a good sermon? Well, a lot of people place the emphasis of the sermon on the speaker. They, they, they particularly like that guy or this person, and you know, that, I love to hear them speak. The, the, the emphasis of a good sermon doesn't begin, nor does it end with a good speaker. It is all about uh, taking the Scripture and explaining the Scripture, expounding on the Word of God. I know a lot of today a lot of uh, pastors are very much into the subjective, uh, the topical uh, preaching, and while there's a place for that, it shouldn't be the steady diet that our congregations receive. The reality is that each one of us here today uh, is here to learn and to grow in God. And that's really one of, the, one of the values that we've held up from the beginning of Vero Bible Fellowship, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we do that through a simple and pure devotion to Christ. And so today what I want to do is just expound the Scripture, just as John, or Paul would do when he came into the temple, or just as Jesus would do, just explain the Scriptures. And so today let's take a look, if we can, at this text. Well, the, the, this is a, a profound thought for me. Maybe not for you, but it is profound to me. When I think about what God's master plan was to bring redemption to the entire lost world, when I think about what kind of a strategy, what kind of a, of a planning went on in God's mind, and yet to learn that he chose 12 disciples who would make more disciples, who would go and make more disciples, disciples begetting disciples, and that that's the plan of God for reaching the world with the gospel. has nothing to do with uh, lights and sound, has nothing to do with amplification systems. It's each individual Christian understanding their part as a disciple of Jesus Christ and carrying that message to this lost world. That's God's plan. And just so you know, there is no backup plan. That's it. You and I are his plan. He's expecting us to steward the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people that we come in contact with. And that's it. It's, it this was God's plan from the beginning. And there's no way that he's going to change it at this point. He's counting on you, just as he's counting on me. Now, here in Matthew 10, we see the beginning of this plan unfolding as we see Jesus training his disciples. He, he's actually now getting ready to release them. They've been spending time with him. They've watched him minister to the multitudes. He has healed people. He has healed them of sickness and of disease. He's delivered people from demonic possession. And they've watched him do all of this. And now all of a sudden, he's at a point in Matthew chapter 10 where he's ready to release them to go into the world on their own. And it's very interesting here. Look at verse 1. It says, And he called to him, to him his twelve disciples. I don't know about you, but I wonder sometimes, how did Jesus call those twelve? 
Now, we know that there were more than 12 disciples. There were many others that followed Christ who were also disciples. But there was a special chosen group of 12 that walked close with him and that he commissioned as apostles. Apostle simply means one who is sent out. And he's doing that here in this chapter. He's going to turn these disciples into apostles. But where did he ever come up with the 12? That's a great question. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. Just write it down. Don't turn, but let me share with you. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. So to get the picture, the second person of the Trinity is spending all night in prayer to the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. So you have to guess a little bit, you know, you're, 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 uh, this is, we're kind of taking a guess, a stab at it, that Jesus received those names from the Father. These were not 12 people that Jesus himself chose. These were 12 men that God the Father appointed Jesus to choose as disciples and apostles. And let me just take it from a guess to more of an accurate, firm truth. If you look with me, if you want to, John chapter 17. In John 17, this is that priestly prayer that Jesus offers up to God the Father right before he goes to the cross. And here it says, I have manifested your name. This is Jesus praying to the Father. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you gave me, for they are yours." All mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. You would think that that prayer simply is speaking of the mass of people who would come to Christ that Jesus is praying and interceding for those, all those who were saved. I think it's a dual meaning. Look at verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you gave, have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He specifically speaks of one of the twelve, Judas. That's interesting to me. Well, what's the difference? Because Jesus in this chapter is going to take these 12 disciples and he's going to turn them into, he's going to transform them into apostles. What's the difference between, because uh, we've all seen both words used throughout the Bible, disciple, apostle. What's the difference? Let me give it to you. Write it down if you want as a Bible student. It might be helpful to you. A disciple means student. I'm not going to go into the Greek on that. 
but it means student. It's someone who is being taught, someone who's being mentored by another disciple. So a disciple is, is a student of another disciple. And once that disciple grows under the teaching of another disciple, that disciple goes and finds another disciple. And now you give that next disciple what you've been given. That, that's God's plan again for us to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're all to be students of the word of God. We're to be students of scripture. And then what's an apostle? An apostle, as I said earlier, means the sent one, one who is sent. It's, it's a disciple or a student who is now being sent out on a very specific mission. And God is the one who gives the mission. There are today many who are self-appointed apostles. They carry the title apostle. I'm not sure God's called them to be an apostle. In fact, I think that the calling of these 12 was very, very unique. And Jesus, he employed them. He, he positioned them to go out and to share the gospel with the world. So here in chapter 10, we see, and he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So what's happening here in chapter 10, the king, Jesus, is giving delegated authority to his disciples, his students. And he sends them out to proclaim the message of the kingdom of heaven, which is another way of saying the kingdom of God. The reason that Matthew, and he's the only of the four gospels that uses the phrase kingdom of heaven, the reason for it is because he's, his audience is a Jewish audience. And to say the kingdom of God would have sent some of the Jews off. They wouldn't have even listened had he used that phrase. So they come in with the kingdom of heaven. And so here in chapter 10, uh, we find that uh, Jesus is about to send these wonderful 12 men of God out. Now what's interesting here is that he would entrust the message to this wonderful group. You say, why would that be interesting? Because really, honestly, these are not well-educated, fine-tuned, trained followers of Jesus. These are a bunch of ragtag renegades. The 12 that the Father gave Jesus to select as disciples to become apostles are men who are like tax collectors, which that's another way of saying a ripoff artist. Um, th these are guys who are political extremists, some of them. And it's a group of smelly fishermen. I mean, these guys are the common, ordinary, down and out, some of them, kind of people that walk the earth. And that's exactly who God chose. That ought to encourage some of you. If God can use them, he can certainly use me. Amen? Uh, so verse 2, the names of the 12 apostles are these. Uh, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. It's interesting that Matthew, in journaling this, this, this wonderful gospel, he gives a little more description to Judas at the tail end. That's very interesting. He's the betrayer. Now, 
These are the 12 disciples that Jesus transformed into apostles and who he sent out. We're going to look at that in just a second. But I want to say something about the 12, okay? Write this down. It might be helpful to you. Four times in the New Testament, we see the listing of the 12 disciples. It happens four times in the entire New Testament. It happens in Matthew chapter 10 right here. It happens in Mark chapter 3. It happens in Luke chapter 6. And it happens in Acts chapter 1. All of those four lists have these 12 names. Interestingly, Peter's name is always, in all four lists, the first name mentioned. And Judas is always the last name mentioned of the 12. Also, let me share with you that the suggestion is, by the way the names are listed in arrangement, that there are three groups of four when you look at the 12. Three groups of four. The first group is always, in all four lists, the first group is always the two pairs of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John. The second list is always starts with Philip, and it includes Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew. The third group is James, the son of Alphaeus. It's Thaddeus, uh, or Judas, who is the brother of James, and Simon the Zealot and Judas, Judas Iscariot. Now what's interesting is the first name of the three different groups seems to be the leader of that group. So Jesus had the 12, he had them broken into three groups, he had leaders over those three groups. Interesting how he did that. Peter was the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. <laughs> Many of you will remember that. There's been numerous times where he would open his mouth when he shouldn't. And maybe you have a ten tendency to speak when you shouldn't. And you're in good company. The Lord is with you there. Uh, he loves you and he still will use you, even though you might stick your foot in your mouth every once in a while. Uh, interestingly, his brother Andrew, Andrew was known as the younger brother of Peter. Maybe some of you feel like Andrew. He's always in someone else's shadow. God never seems to pick me. I'm more insignificant, or at least that's how you see yourself. Let me tell you something. God chose somebody who appeared insignificant to be one of the 12 disciples to go and share the gospel to the world. There really isn't a position that you can hold that God cannot use. There's no fault that God cannot overcome. We go further and you look down and uh, you see uh, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother uh, John. Uh, they were called the sons of, Z of thunder. And uh, one very unique incident that took place was Jesus and his disciples were making their way to Jerusalem and they passed through Samaria. They came upon a city or a, really a village and they wanted to board up for the night. And uh, the folks in that city, the Samaritans, said, no way. If you're going to Jerusalem, you ain't staying here. Because there was such a hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews. So as they were leaving the town, Jesus, of course, being rejected, and the disciples being rejected by the people, they're leaving town. Uh, James and John went to Jesus and asked, Lord, do you want us to send down fire from heaven and destroy these people? 
So what do you say about the Sons of Thunder? Okay, maybe they have an anger issue. I don't know. But uh, th- th- these guys are doing it their way. And that's, that's the reality. So out of the first group alone, Jesus chose a guy who's always saying the wrong thing, a guy who lived in the shadow of his older brother, and a couple of guys with explosive tempers. Think you can hang in that group? I think so. We all have our issues, don't we? Things that we're working through, we're trying to overcome by the help of the Holy Spirit. But God still expects you to be used. I'm saying all this because too often people look to somebody that they think has it all together to go and share the gospel. I can't do it. I'm still a mess. There's nothing I can do to help. It needs to be on you. And so they look to preachers, they look to Bible teachers, they look to people with big personalities to go and do the gospel sharing. I'll just stay quiet. I don't really amount to much. I can't do much of anything. And I'm telling you that this text is teaching us that Jesus is counting on you. He needs all of us to do our part, to share the gospel. If you are a disciple, which is a student of Christ, you've been saved, you're born again, converted, God expects you to grow in his word, and he expects you to share that word with others and be a witness to Jesus Christ. No one in the church has an excuse for not being a witness for Jesus. No one. Now, in the next group, you have Philip, who after meeting Jesus, ran to tell his friend, Bartholomew or Nathaniel, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That gives you a little insight to these two two, uh, men. They were friends and they both, Philip and Bartholomew, they both had an understanding of Old Testament scripture. They followed what the prophets said. They knew a Messiah was coming, and they knew he was coming from Nazareth, and here he is. Here he is. Interesting. So who do we have? Rounding out the second group, you've also got Thomas, who is the doubter, and you've got Matthew, the rip-off, ripoff artist, the tax collector. In the third group, you have James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. There's nothing in Scripture that tells us anything about James. And James is the leader of the last four. And the Scripture doesn't say anything about James. I mean nothing. There's nothing in there at all. So why would he be a disciple, much less a leader of a group of disciples? Again, another picture. You don't have to be somebody who's prominent, well-known, and powerful to serve alongside Jesus. Let that seep into your cranium. Let it make its way 12 inches deep into your heart. God is counting on you. It's interesting to me, Thaddeus was the one who asked Jesus in the upper room why he wouldn't reveal himself to the world. Again, when you think about it, Thaddeus is saying, but I thought Messiah was going to come and establish a kingdom. These guys didn't even have it all together in their theology, even though Jesus had been sharing these things with them. You fit. In God's, in God, on God's team, you fit. 
He's looking to you. He's counting on you. Simon the Zealot? Are you kidding? Matthew, the tax collector, on the same team? Do you understand that the zealots were those who tried to unrule the Romans in their occupation of Jerusalem? And on the other side of it, you've got Matthew who's working for the Romans? In any other setting, Matthew would have had a, a, a knife in his back. And it would have come straight from Simon the Zealot. But because they're both on the team of Christ, because they've both been saved, they've both been changed by Jesus, here they are together. Isn't that us today? If we knew each other's background, some of you'd say, I would never, ever hang out with you. But oh, what Christ can do when he transforms a life. There is probably somebody here today who's been, you know, married three or four times. Somebody else who possibly even committed murder. We don't know the people sitting around us in terms of the world's view. If you look at the social economic, you look at the different, you know, demographic, we all are different. You've got some folks in here who are redneck, and you've got some folks in here who come out right out of New York City and working on Wall Street. You've got all kinds of folks sitting in here. How in the world do we all make it in the same room? Jesus Christ is the glue. He has made us all one at the foot of the cross. you got people in here who are cowboys. you got people in here who work for Major League Baseball teams. I mean, you've got all kinds of folks, former NFL football players. You've got people who are just down and out, common folk, who have nothing to show for their life except a past life of sin. That's all they seem to see. And yet God has saved them all. We're all the same. Nobody's better than anybody else. Doesn't matter what color you are. Doesn't matter what languages you can speak. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Doesn't that bless your heart? You got people here who come out of a charismatic background. You got folks who come out of a liturgical background. How in the world do you put a liturgical person and a charismatic in the same room to worship God? Though you charismatic can't do anything but this. They want the hands to fly up and the liturgical sitting on his hands for all we know. They're opposite in how they approach, but yet God has made them one. And they worship together. You've got Calvinists in here and you've got Arminians. But the focus isn't on their Calvinism or their Arminianism. The focus is on Jesus Christ. And so therefore they're able to worship Christ together. This is the picture that God has. These are the kinds of people that God's chosen and called. These are the people that God is sending out. He wants us to go to the same types of people that we worship with who were lost but now are saved, and there's still others out there that are lost, and they're just as different from you as we are to each other, and they need Jesus. Verse 5, let's move on. These 12, uh, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them. Here's the instruction. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is a very important, restrictive instruction. 
Why? Because he was establishing that you begin in your own backyard. You are Jews, you go among the Jews, and you share the message to the Jew. But not only that reason, also because Jesus first came to the Jews, not the Gentiles. Most of us in this room uh, are Gentile. And aren't you glad that God came after us, amen? And that we're just as much a part of his family as the Jew is, or could be if they would believe in Jesus. But the reality is, he started with the Jews, and he's sending his disciples out to the Jews. And it's interesting, these guys were not superhuman. These 12 were not special. I just told you their stories. They're, it, it, they're, these are common people. They're just like us. And so right away, Jesus puts this restriction on them. And then he says, go and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was the very message that Jesus has been sharing from the very first day of his earthly ministry. And from the moment that he called his disciples, they've been hearing him share this message. They've watched him speak to the crowds as he's healing and casting out demons, yet he's calling people, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now he's saying, I want you to go. That's a good leader. A good leader tells that one who's following, just do what I'm doing. Just say what I'm saying. It's really not on your personality. Salvation to someone doesn't come because you're good at speaking. Salvation comes to them because God calls them and God reaches them by the Holy Spirit. Amen? He just needs us to be faithful to share it. It's just like with the parable of the soil. Jesus speaks of the, the sower. I don't know why they call it the parable of the sower. He only mentions the sower one time in the whole thing. He talks about soils the whole time. And what does he say to the, par to, the, to the sower? He says, just be faithful to throw the seed. What's the seed? The Word of God. Just be faithful to communicate the Word of God and let the, let the, let the seed fall on every type of soil out there. What's the soil in that story? It's attitudes of heart. Those who reject Christ, throw a little seed. Those who have a fertile soil, their heart's ready to receive, throw the seed. Those who are in between, throw the seed. This is what Christ is saying to you and I. Don't put the emphasis on your personality, on your distinct character. It's not about that. It's about you being faithful to just share the word of God. Be faithful to the word. Verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Now these would have been impossible things for them to do had Jesus not already empowered them. Remember, he's turned them from disciples into apostles. He gave them special ability, delegated authority that comes from God to go out and do these things in his name. Okay, and interestingly, uh, whatever God has given you, whatever gift, whatever ability, whatever money, whatever talent you have, it's been given to you freely by God's grace. Stop saying this is what I've accomplished. This is what I've been doing in my life, and this is what I can... <laughs> Stop it. Everything you've ever done that's good came from God. Man is not good in himself. The only thing good about us is God. Amen? And, and, and whatever you say, well, I have a Ph.D., well, who gave you the mind 
to go out and get a PhD. The Lord did. It all comes from Him. Stop taking credit for God's work. And know this, that if God's called you and you don't have any of those things going for you, God will equip you. Where God guides, God will provide. He always does. You know, when we started Vero Bible Fellowship, it's just interesting. And I'm not saying that this is the story, uh, how it always happens. Anything that God does, He can do it in a number of different ways. I mean, if He's healing somebody, take just the blind people in the Bible that He heals, He never healed blind people the same way. To one person, He walks over and just heals them. To another person, He takes mud, makes, or takes spit, makes mud, puts the mud in their eyes. To another person, I mean, he does it differently every time. Well, the same is true for you and I. God's not going to, he's not, he's not a cookie cutter God. He's not a cookie cutter God. And so our role, our way of following God is uniquely different from somebody else. Everybody's unique. Verse 9, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff. Jesus, Jesus doesn't want us fully equipped for our mission. That's what he's saying. See, what happens is we get a mission in our mind. Oh, I've got to be a God. I've got I to share the gospel. Therefore, I better go buy, you know, that uh, I want to download that preacher's uh, eight-part series on how to be a witness for Jesus. I've got to learn all that. And then I want to get a certificate that shows that I know what I'm talking about. Do you understand that the Gentile way of ministry was more of a classroom setting? It was more of the picture of ready, aim, fire get prepared learn how to aim and then fire that's how the greeks do it that was not the way of the hebrew theirs was ready fire aim that's what jesus did with his disciples he said follow me ready and then jesus did it fire and then they learned from what he did aim stop thinking you've got to have a degree stop thinking you've got to know so much before you can share you share with people what you know right now you say well i don't know enough you let me say it you didn't hear me say to people what you know whatever you know share it not about how much you know now as a as a student of god's word as a disciple a follower you're going to keep learning more you're going to grow more you're going to have know more and then you'll share more but just share what you know don't wait until you know so much if you look at the people in the bible who knew so much they were the pharisees and the scribes they didn't turn out so well in jesus day it's not about how much you know it's about sharing what you know see it's about application, not just knowledge for learning's sake, knowledge for practice's sake. I want to give out what God's been putting in me. Amen? Don't be stopped up. Some of you are so constipated, you need the lubrication of the Holy Spirit. What a terrible analogy to draw. Let me take a drink after that one. What do you know? I know that Jesus changed my life. I know he went to the cross and he died for me. Share it. Let somebody know what Jesus has done for you. 
He saved me from my sin. He saved me from the wrath of God. I have an eternal home in heaven. I'm not going to hell now. If that's all you know, share it. That's the gospel. Stop sitting back waiting to know more. Start with where you are. I'm just telling you, these are the principles of Christ. This is what he was doing with his disciples. He, he goes further and he says, For the laborer deserves his food. So when the disciples went out healing sick, cleansing lepers, raising dead, don't you think someone might have asked them for a, for, to come over for dinner? You bet. See, as you are doing the Lord's work, the Lord provides back to you. The other side of that is, if you're receiving the Lord's work, give back to the one giving the Lord's work. It's a good thing for us to recognize disciples who are serving and to give back to them, share with them, love them, encourage them, support them. But on the other side of it, as a disciple... Give, and it will be given to you. Pressed down, shaken together, running over will be poured in your lap. And I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about just the blessings of life. You want to be a servant of Christ. You want to give yourself to others for Christ's sake, not your sake. And as you make Christ the centerpiece of your giving, God will give back to you. It just works. It's a law of reciprocity. You can't outgive God. Verse 11, in whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon that house. A worthy house is one where there is an openness, a readiness to receive the gospel. That's what he meant by that. A worthy home is a home that's open and ready. Jesus is also telling us that we, don't, we shouldn't shop for better quarters. If you're going out as a disciple, just look for an open heart. And when you find one, camp there. Stay there for a while. Stop trying to get a more open person. Oh, you know, if I could, you know, a teenager, if I could reach the quarterback of the football team, boy, the impact that we would have. And so you're always trying to get the quarterback who's not open to the gospel. Or if I could get that cheerleader, man, so many kids would come to Christ. If they're not open to the gospel, Jesus says they're not worthy. The only one worthy is the water boy. Start with the water boy. Camp where God opens the door. Does that make sense? Start with where, see how much easier this is than what we normally think? He says, but if it, if, if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So there is a, there is a judgment coming to those who don't receive the gospel. But here, Jesus in his day when the Jews would accidentally or unavoidably walk across uh, a territory line, 
that separated the Jews from the Gentiles, whenever they would cross over into the land of the Gentile, as they left the land, they would stop and shake the dust off their feet. Saying to the Gentile, you have rejected God. And so they were speaking against, they're bringing a judgment to the Gentile. So these, these disciples knew very well what Jesus was saying there. And when the apostles shook the dust off their feet from a group or a people or a person who was unworthy, that person knew exactly what they were meaning by that. You rejected the message. The message was, you're lost just like you think the Gentiles are lost. We come to you presenting the good news, but if you reject it, you bring judgment upon yourself. That's what the disciples were saying to people in that day. Verse 16, let's pick it up. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That's interesting. You're going to go out as sheep, a, a tender sheep, a, a, a defenseless animal, and you're going to be among wolves, a predatory animal. Jesus is giving you and I fair warning today. When you go out and you share the gospel of Christ, it's not going to be a fair fight. But I'm going to be with you. You're not alone. In fact, you're not even representing yourself. You're representing me. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. You're going to be flogged at, at their synagogues to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Whenever they deliver you over, do not be anxious to how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Interesting. See, you are, in, you are now, if you're a believer, if you're born again, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And He will bring to remembrance the things that Jesus has said that you've studied in the Scripture. You have to believe that. Because He said it. Jesus told his disciples, in the moment that you need to speak, I'll give you the words to speak. And he's saying to you and I, because the Holy Spirit now resides in us, you'll have what you need when you need it. See, we want it before we get there. Lord, what should I say? Let me write it down, exactly what I want to say. He doesn't want you walking up to somebody. Um, um, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Um, he wants you to walk up to that person and out of who you are, a broken, shattered, splintered, crushed, annihilated human being who was lost for all eternity in sin, but who now has found life through a free gift of God through the cross of Jesus Christ. He's saying, now you get it. And you're going to go out and you're going to say to that person, hey man, I've been wanting to say this to you for a while. And I just need to say it. I love you. And, and I'm not the same person that I was a year ago. And the reason is because I gave my life over to Jesus Christ. And what he's done in my life, I'd love to, if you ever want to listen, I'd love to share with you. It's amazing what Christ has done for me. See, that's just you. And what I just gave you was me. That's not you. You have your own way of saying it. But say it. Say it. Verse 21, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. In other words, you're going to go out among people, you're going to share the gospel, and literally the gospel will rip families apart. 
you do know that some of the greatest persecution a Christian faces comes from their own family members. Rejection, isolation, ostracized. You go to, to the family's Thanksgiving, not this year probably, but you go to family Thanksgiving dinner, 30, 40, 100 people, whatever your size family is, and certain ones never even come over and say hi to you. They stand over as a group over there and they just kind of look at you and smirk and laugh. I understand that very well. It was interesting. When I, when I, was, uh, I, I gave this, the funeral for my, my cousin uh, up in Atlanta, Georgia, and his father, uh, who was my uncle, uh, pulled me into a side room. And he said, Greg, thank you for doing this service. He said, I want you to know that I, early on when you went into the ministry, I was disappointed in you and I told you that. I thought you were wasting your life. And I've got to tell you that I'm sorry and I'm glad that you're a minister. You've been faithful in what you do. On that weekend after the or right before the service, before we headed out to go to the funeral, uh, my cousin who passed, that we were doing the funeral, his brother pulled me into the side room and said, Greg, I want to receive Jesus Christ. That family, uh, before all that happened, was one of the families in my family that kind of just looked at me kind of like, weird, why? Why would you do that? Why would you become a pastor? You could be a business person. You could make money. So you just be faithful and know that it's going to split families. It's, they're not going to get you. It's okay. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now let me explain that. That doesn't mean that if you work hard enough, you're going to get saved at the end. Or that salvation doesn't come until the end when they measure up whether or not you were enduring. No, what he's saying there is those who are saved will endure. <laughs> those who are truly saved will endure to the end. They just will. Why? Because they're saved. So that's not a questionable thing about salvation. That's just telling you that truly saved people endure and he goes further he said when they persecute you in town flee to uh, the next for truly i say to you you will not have gone through all the towns of israel before the son of man comes a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master if they have called the master of the house Be uh, beelzebul how much more will they malign those of his household? Beelzebul literally means Lord of the Flies. And that's what they call Jesus, the Lord of the Flies. It was a Philistine god who was worshipped by people who lived in, that, in what is today known as the Gaza Strip. There were those who said to Jesus that he was doing all these miracles, all these things through the power of Satan. It was a demonic power that he possessed. And those of you who follow him are working out of the same demonic power. That's what they were saying. Jesus is saying back to you, knowing that that's what they're saying about you, Jesus is saying back to you, if they're calling you uh, the Lord of the Flies, know that they called me that first. You're, 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 just, you're just one of them. You're just me. In fact, they, they're coming after me. Don't take it personal when people reject you as you share the gospel. 
know that they're rejecting Jesus more than they're rejecting you. They're just ticked off at you for believing it. But you believe it because it's changed you. Verse 26, so have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. In other words, a day is coming when everything will be made right, but you might not, you, listen, you might die before that day comes. You might die a persecuted death, a, a martyr's death. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Never anywhere, this whole idea, and I know that many of us were raised in this, that there's two things you don't talk about. Religion and politics. And then you go up to people who <clears throat> are Christian in your family and you say, you try to start a conversation about the Lord and they're like, oh, that's a, that's a private thing. I, I, uh, uh, they don't know what Jesus said, do they? What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. A sparrow, you could purchase a sparrow, it could cost you about one-eighth of a day's wage in that day. And Jesus said, even that little tiny sparrow that's so common that you can purchase for so cheap, even that sparrow God looks after. And how much more value are you to him than that sparrow? So even the whole time you're being beat up, it's like that time, I, I'll never forget, you know, I was taking a lot of heat uh, over standing on truth. And the newspaper was putting out all kinds of letters, letters to the editor and things like that and writing articles, and it was all negative. And I, I was okay. I mean, it, you know, you'd like people to like you. And I, more importantly, I'd like for them to like the... Jesus and to know the truth and to want truth but they didn't and so I called up a buddy and I said hey man uh, he said how you doing I said well you know it's kind of crazy right now and he said praise God when I was under persecution he's like praise God that's wonderful oh man you're, you're getting to practice what the Beatitudes taught Jesus said blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake I'm like, wow, that's the right way to look at it. So, so stop holding back, sharing Christ for fear that you'll be rejected. To be rejected is for you to know you're in the footsteps of Christ. You're doing what you ought to be doing. Amen? See it that way. Now, I'm not saying when somebody rejects you, you go, "Woo! praise God, I just got rejected. No, no, no. The goal is that you, they would receive the message. So don't become this self-martyr, but be willing to be martyred for the gospel. Willing to suffer for the namesake of Christ. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his household, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In other words, we should expect that normally following Jesus makes us better husbands, better wives, better sons, better daughters, better aunts and uncles and all that. Okay, But the reality is Jesus warns that if we live for him in our own home, we're going to face isolation. We're going to face rejection. 
It's just going to happen. But he makes it clear that if you value family, if you value friendships more than you value him, you're not worthy of him. Jesus didn't come to be a friend. He came to be your Lord. You can have friends. Friends can reject the message of Christ, but you never want to be on the side of stopping sharing Christ for the sake of losing a friend. Don't do that. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew, it came in chapter 10, that Jesus uses the term cross. If you're not worthy, or if you're not willing to take your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. A disciple must follow Jesus even in the, to the place of taking his cross. Now when a person took a cross in Jesus' day, it was for one reason, to die. When Jesus made this statement, it had to just shock the disciples because they'd been under Roman occupation. Nobody practiced cross death better than the Romans. They knew very well what it meant to take a cross. And so they have to be shocked by this. But the listen, Jesus is letting them know that's how serious it is to be a disciple of mine. That's how serious it is for you to go into this world and share the gospel that you would even be willing to go to a cross and die. Have you ever considered that in your walk with Christ? See, my fear is that especially in North America, because we're all about consumerism, we've come to Christ because He has something we need. Well, he, it's free salvation? Eternal life is free? Really? I love free things. I, I want that too. Wrong attitude. No, you've got to die to yourself, not physically, that would be easy, it happens once. Die every day to your self-desires so that you can be found in Christ Jesus. He talks about that here. Verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, going back, just one more thing I want to say about the cross. When Jesus says, take his cross, take up your cross, He's not referring to a particular trial or trouble that you're facing. The cross means one thing. Again, it means death. So, you know, somebody says, oh man, my cross I'm bearing. Why? Because you're being persecuted? Uh, that's not good enough. That's not what Jesus is talking about. For you to die. That's what cross means. Take up your cross. Be willing to die. Not, not go out and do something to cause yourself to die. Just be willing by sharing Christ. By the way, this is the first mention of the cross. Again, verse 40, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. It's interesting. The good done to Christ's disciples is as if it were good being done to Jesus himself. That's how Jesus refers to this. The disciples are his representatives. They're carrying out his ministry when someone does good to you because you've shared the gospel faithfully with them, they are giving that to Jesus. Now that on the other side of that, think about you. Here you are today receiving a teaching of the Bible. And many of you have chosen to give financially to the work of the church for the spreading of the gospel, for the teaching of the saints. And you're faithful in your giving. Do you understand that if you are faithful in your giving, I just want to encourage you today, you're being faithful to give 
to God. You're doing it to Jesus. You're not doing it because you want to support Greg or Pastor Brenton or the elders who are also shepherds of our flock. You're doing it because you see the work that God has called us to and that we desire to be obedient to that work. But when you do it, it's like you're giving to Jesus because it's all his work. It's, it's him through us, amen? It's beautiful. Verse 41, the one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. We can share in the reward of God's servants by supporting them in their work. That's what he's really saying. Even the seemingly small things like a cup of water performed for God's person who's come to you, that is meaningful in the eyes of God. So this is not, this is not speaking of philanthropy. It's really speaking about how to treat God's servants, the disciples. Who are the disciples? Who are the disciples? You. All of us. Not just the pastors, not just the elders. We're all called to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. I want to pray a closing prayer, and I want to invite uh, you, if you'd like to come up and pray with one of our elders or one of our prayer uh, partners, they'll come up and stand along the sides, and you can go to them even now, or you can go at the close of the service. But I want, to, I want us to pray a prayer. And this prayer is that God would so move in our hearts this week that we would be uncomfortable if we didn't take the opportunities given by God to share with, share with people Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm literally praying, God, I pray that this congregation of believers, I'm not talking about those of you who are here who aren't really saved, who are playing a game with God, just want to be seen or whatever. I don't, I'm not saying there are people, I don't know. But those of you who are truly saved, my prayer today is that you would be miserable this week if you pass an opportunity to share Christ. I, I pray that you cannot eat, you cannot sleep, you cannot drink and feel good about it if you're passing up opportunities that God has given you to share Christ. That's, that's how much as a shepherd I want our flock to be about God's message. A message that he's put in our hands, in our care. We are the stewards of that message to share with others. My prayer is that every one of us this week would take advantage of the opportunities that God presents. That we would stop using excuses for why we can't and they can. And we would just realize those disciples were just like us. They're just like me. And God's counting on me to carry his message to the world. And persecution, yes, it's going to happen. But when it happens, I'm in good company. I'm with Christ. He's with me. I think one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible about Christ with us in our suffering has to be when Stephen 
stood before the Jews and proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he proclaimed Christ who was resurrected from the dead. And the Jews became vehemently mad at him. They came at him. They took off their coats. Some of them threw that coat on the arm of a young guy named Saul, who later would be Paul, the apostle. And these Jews picked up rocks, and they started stoning Stephen. And as he was dying, standing there, receiving the blows of these rocks that were hitting him, the Bible says he lifted himself up, looked at the heaven, and when he, under persecution, remained faithful, and he lifted his eyes, God pulled back the sky, and he let him see Christ, who wasn't seated at the right hand of God the Father, the Bible says in that one passage, it's one of the only passages in the Bible, that Jesus was standing. When you stand for Christ, he stands for you. You're not alone in it. So receive it. Get on with it. Be a faithful servant of Jesus. Be a steward of the gospel of Jesus Christ this week. And if you don't, your shepherd is saying, I pray you're miserable this week. I pray the same for me, by the way. I'm not putting you in a category I'm not in. Amen. Is this not the heart of God for Bureau Bible Fellowship? Amen. It is for every church. And it's certainly for us. Father, today, thank you for your love and thank you for your message Thank you for the grace that you've given us to be saved so that we could be counted worthy to carry this message to a lost world. Thank you, Father. And Jesus, thank you for teaching us what it looks like to be a witness and, and, and that we can count the cost, that if we're going to be a witness, we are going to face rejection. We're going to have to pick up our cross and follow you. Be willing to die for the sake of the gospel. And yet in North America, that's not the threat. Not many people die because of their faith in Jesus in America. Other parts of the world, yes, but not here. But we will be rejected. We will even have family members that don't want to speak. But if we're faithful to the word and just get the word out, you'll use that word and you'll bring forth a harvest even out of our family members. That's my prayer, Lord Jesus, today for this body. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody that knows the Lord said, Amen. Amen. Amen.